What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. All right. And as we always do, uh, we every uh, two o'clock hour here, we always start when we can with Matt Harris, uh, the uh, morning co-host of the Matt Ramona Show on our sister station, Mix 107.9. But also, more importantly, or equally as important, the uh, at least for my purpose here, he's been producing and co-hosting a podcast on the Alec Murdoch cases with Seton Tucker. The name of that podcast is Impact of Influence, uh, and it is available on all major podcasting platforms. You can also catch him most weeknights on Court TV as well. Matt, welcome back. Welcome, yes, I'm so uh, glad to be here. Yes, sir. I was supposed to go down last week to the trial, ended up getting the old COVID, so I couldn't go. Oh, no. Yes. Well, at least you got something to watch on TV all, the, all day, right? right? That's, right. That's uh, right. So, yeah, well, all right, so the, there is no court today because of the President's Day holiday. So uh, they're at a session today, which I'm sure everybody covering the trial and everybody um, uh, you know participating in it is probably glad for a, a little bit of a break because— this thing is now going on, uh, what, four, it's been four weeks, is that right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And this is a, I mean, this is a pretty, uh, this is a long day. This judge is running them from 9.30 in the morning until like 6 o'clock at night most nights. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, lunch break, he does He does a lot of short little breaks, so that's helpful, I think, you know, give people a chance to stand up, stretch. So that's that's good, um, but that's still a long day. So anyway, so they, they did not have a... Uh, uh, session today, but let's go back to Friday. I was not, uh, I was not uh, on the air Thursday or Friday, uh, so I got a little bit of catching up to do. But I spent yesterday watching Friday's testimony, and mm-hmm. uh, and then the state rested. That's the big news that came out Friday, right? Yes, the, yeah, the, the, so the prosecution's ready to roll. I mean, there was other things that came out too, I guess, because right. uh, of of more time frame stuff because of the suddenly OnStar found all this information. Right, and that unfolded over the course like Thursday and Friday, and then I guess they finally brought one of their sled agents up, and he kind of put together this whole timeline. It, they, they didn't seem to be pointing to the conclusion that they wanted us to draw yet. They were showing us how different things were linked together, different actions with the OnStar, with the cell phone movement, with text messages. They were linking them, but they didn't explicitly say, this is what it means, I didn't think. What did you... What, what did you take away from the from that testimony where they where they tried to they lined up all of the uh, all of the the timeline stuff? Well, I think you're right. I think it could have been done more clearly, and I think they'll probably do that when they do their closing argument. Right. But I there was two things they they wanted to. It seemed like they were pushing, or three things, I guess. One would be that the nine one one call that Alec makes is 20 seconds from when he pulls up to the bodies and they're saying, you know, 20 seconds, that makes no sense. Uh, After he arrives at the house, he pulls into the driveway and he cannot see, they're saying he could not have seen where the bodies were. He was too far away. Well, he he goes to, okay, he goes to uh, the house. Okay. After he's home, he goes in there for a few minutes, comes out, drives up, and from the time he stops his car and gets out, 
It's 20 seconds till he comes back and calls 911. Ah, okay. So he drove his car down to the kennel area. Right. Gotcha. Right. And so what they're saying is, what they're trying to say in the state is, okay, this guy comes upon these bodies mutilated and horrible, and he also uh, claims to have taken vitals of some sort, and he does it all in 20 seconds. And then the state comes back, and they do the old thing where they actually put the timer down and start a timer, and they show how long 20 seconds is, and they talk about how if he's coming upon the bodies and the directions he's going, his headlights would have at least shown Maggie's body. So they're counting that as time. So that was a point of contention with each of them. And people I talked to felt differently about it. I felt 20 seconds is fine. Because when you say check vitals or something, it's not like right. he didn't necessarily get down and his hands and knees and do CPR. He might have just like, okay, they're not breathing. They're not breathing. Every, you know, whatever that means. Uh, and then and then run over to the car and do the call. Right. And you don't even, way. yeah, and you don't even need to take the vitals on Paul. It's obvious that he's deceased. Right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, his injuries were so catastrophic that there was, you know, there, there's no doubt um, but then again, you know, maybe he, he said he, well, he said he reached down and, you know, tried to roll him over or whatever. Right. But I don't know why. I mean, the whole back of his head is missing. So I, I don't know what then. I don't understand that either. Yeah. And then. I mean, the 20 seconds you go either way for me, but that's one of the things they. they I agree. But I mean, I've, and then this, the, 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 the continuing thing, theme by people outside the jury box has been like, if they were my family members, I would have been hugging them and holding them. And, and, I, and I don't think we can yeah. convict or, or not convict somebody based on what you think you might have done in that situation. Right. Everybody, everybody processes grief and trauma differently. Um, and that was one. I mean, look, I, there are cases. North Carolina, the staircase uh, uh, murder, Michael Peterson, right, uh, up in uh, what Greensboro, the author, uh, who didn't respond, quote, appropriately in some people's minds that he didn't, he wasn't weeping and crying or whatever. And so because of that, and there was the, the one here in Charlotte all those years ago where a, a former doctor, same thing, like people didn't think he cried enough. And so uh, they, they thought he was guilty. That That's so not, we interviewed a 911 operator, two 911 operators uh, who have both dealt with murders. And they're like, it's such, it's runs the gamut. Yeah. She also told me a story about a guy who just real quickly, uh, the wife was dead. And he went about his business like it didn't happen. He saw her. She was there. He slept like he slept on the couch, watched TV, and then finally called 911. And everybody thought he was guilty. They were to prove it was somebody else. But he just went into some sort of autopilot weirdness mm. that happens. That but is anyway, weird. Yeah. The 20 second things is a big one. Right. Uh, also, the Speed. OnStar thing showed him go to his mom's house and then make a little detour around like a little wooded area very briefly. Mm-hmm behind the house, um, which is the double-edged sword of, okay, why didn't Sled even go over there and check anything out? Did he ever go back to his mom's house? And re- the idea there is obviously that he, this little detour around the property at his mom's, that that's, he's disposing of the, of the guns and everything and the clothing or whatever. Uh, yeah. Did he ever go back? Do we know if he ever went back there and retrieved him and disposed of him? We've not heard yet. I mean, he, well, we know that uh, eight days later when he, the tarp raincoat incident that he brought in, she says, uh, Shelly Smith said that he, who was the caretaker of the mom, says that he did go out back and drive his dad's truck somewhere 
and maybe even or and drove the uh, ATV. Although there's there's word that the ATV had a flat tire, so we're not sure that's true. But yeah, so there is possibility he went back there for sure. Right. So he went yeah. back. This was the famous uh, raincoat or tarp or poncho uh, incident where she saw him come in with something. They tested it, and that's what popped with the gunshot residue on the inside of the poncho, which it would be very difficult to explain how that got there. Uh, and so, all right. So that's the second part, right? The trip to the the trip to mom's. Uh, and then what's the third major point? Um, I, I well, I'm, again, you could take it whether it's major or not, but they. Uh, we're pointing out that when he left Moselle, uh, it appears his car slowed down at the point where Maggie's phone was tossed. Right. Uh, that is what they're trying to say. So he's going like 80, then he went to like 40, and, and again, uh, you know, that's, again, building, building blocks of potential uh, issues. Right. So those were the... I mean, those were the biggies until we got into the drug stuff, which we can deal with later if you want. No, we can do that now. Let's go ahead. I don't know how much time you had. Okay. Yeah, we got like so the two minutes. Stuff was big, right? The drug stuff was huge. Um, it came up that Maggie, well, first Paul, who they called a little detective earlier in mm-hmm. one of the testimonies, uh, they found a, a text from him telling. Alec, we've got to talk. This is a, uh, maybe two weeks before the murders, I think it was in May, um, because mom found pills in your computer bag. And then Maggie, they found out that she had been Googling, like, what's a white and blue pill, blah, 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 trying to figure out what they were. Um, and there was tons of, tons of pills. Uh, so the state is presenting this. Okay, they were busting him on his pill usage. That was coming to a head, along with the financials. So there's another motive if you need one uh but they say that he was taking like 50 pills a day or something that's insanity yeah what was it fifty thousand dollars a month he was spending oh, on a week week, week oh a week, week, week. yeah yeah 50k a week sometimes a hundred thousand a week i just i i don't understand that i don't believe that i don't believe it either here's what i i mean i believe that uh, i mean allegedly i believe no i do believe it so that's not allegedly <laughs> <laughs> I believe, allegedly, uh, that he was giving pills or selling pills to other people because I, I just, 50 pills a day for that kind of money, uh, that, and for allegedly for 20 years? Yeah, he'd be dead. I think he would be dead. I think so, too. I mean, I, I, there was an addiction expert. One of the talking heads show was like, no, you, you could do it if he just, you know, he just... He would never. He would never withdraw. That's when people have problems because he's constantly taking. But fifty a day. Yeah, I don't. That's crazy. No man. All right. So, yes, yeah, so that was a big thing. Was the, the drug thing is now into play, and I think the defense will bring the drug thing up more. Yeah. As a possibility of shooters or a shooter or or a reason why someone might take the family out. Right. No, I, I agree. All right, uh, Matt, we'll check in with you tomorrow. Hope you feel better. Beat the Rona. Wait. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. All right, Matt Harris. Check it. Check out the podcast. It's called Impact of Influence, available on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, appreciate it. Going over the latest in the Murdoch trial. Uh, there is There was no court today, uh, so uh, I suspect tomorrow uh, the 2 o'clock update that we do is going to be pretty short. Um, but the big news from uh, what, Thursday and Friday Uh, As Matt Harris just went over, uh, we had the introduction of all of the drug use, um, 
and we had the uh, the timeline, and then the state rested. I actually have the. Let me go ahead and do that now, because so this is actually uh, a really good summary of the state's case. This is not their closing argument, but what happens is after every time the prosecution rests their case, they're like, "Okay, we've 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 made our case." The defense usually then says. They didn't make enough of a case. We want the court to throw it out. And they'll ask for a directed verdict. You know, get rid of the jury. Find him not guilty. Let's let's put this uh, behind us, you know. It's standard. They do it all the time. Even in cases where it's like, yeah, that's pretty obvious he did it. They're like, oh, you didn't prove it. And the judge is like, yeah, I think I think there's enough evidence to continue. So they, they made that motion. So when making the motion, though, they have to argue. They have to argue. And so the state has to respond. So first up, you've got Jim Griffin. He is the defense attorney, one of the defense attorneys for Alec Murdoch. And he gets up first and he asks for uh, for a directed verdict. As your honor knows, after the evidence is closed, if there's a failure of competent evidence tending to prove the charge in the indictment, um, then the defendant is entitled to a directed verdict. The court should consider only the existence or non-existence of the evidence and not its weight. In this case, Your Honor, the, 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 the evidence is, is um, exclusively circumstantial. And in um, State v. Dent, the South Carolina Court of Appeals in 2021 explained that the standard to be applied when the state relies upon circumstantial evidence is that all of the circumstances must be consistent with each other and when taken together point conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. If their circumstances merely portray the defendant's behavior as suspicious, the proof has failed. And also another legal doctrine that, that we would point out is, is mere presence at the scene of a crime without more is insufficient to constitute guilt. The reason I, I, I say that legal doctrine, Your Honor, is, is at most what the state has proven and offered of proof is that the defendant was at the kennels at 844. He uh, misstated that he was there, or he lied about he was being down there, but and that raises a level of suspicion, and that they have concocted a cell phone timeline to, to come up with a time of death without any actual evidence of time of death. And there is no direct and, frankly, circumstantial evidence presented that the defendant shot and killed his wife, Maggie, or son, Paul. As the evidence established, the murderer would have had blood and biological material on him or her. The murderer would have had blood on his or her clothing. The murderer would have murder weapons. The murderer or murderers would have evidence of disposing of murder weapons on property or vehicle. And there's no evidence that Alec Murdoch had any of this. He had no blood from the brutal murder of his son, Paul. He had no DNA from Paul on his clothing in an area where you would expect to find it. If he had shot his son, which he did not, there's no GSR in his clothing or clothes that is inconsistent with Alec holding a shotgun for protection. The state has proven at most that he was at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. The state does not have proof of time of death. The state does only have proof of when the last time Paul and Maggie used their phones. Most importantly, and as I mentioned earlier, the law is clear. Mere presence at the scene of a crime is insufficient to establish guilt. Although, to be equally clear, Alec Murdoch was not at the scene of the crime at the time 
His wife and son were murdered, and there's no evidence that he was. And for that reason, we move for a directed verdict. All right, move for the directed verdict. Now, he kind of skips over that part about the lies, <laughs> about being at the kennels. But that's a pretty big one. It is a pretty big lie because he said it to multiple people when asked multiple times, were you ever down there at the dog kennels? And he repeatedly said he was not. Now, I suspect what the defense is probably going to argue at some point here is that all of the $50,000 a week drug use, you know, he doesn't remember all of this stuff, let alone could he have pulled something like this off and, and, you know, done something like this. Now, Matt Harris was also talking about the uh, the discovery that they, that mom, Maggie, had found all of these pills. She had done Google searches trying to figure out what kinds of drugs they were. And Paul, the son, was the, quote, little detective that found the pills for Maggie and told and then to, or, or uh, if he didn't find them, he would snoop around trying to find the pills. But he told Alec that, hey, mom found your stash. Mom found the pills. Again, like that's, I find that to be a very big number, 50 grand a week. I think he was, I I, got to believe there was some trafficking going on, you know? Um, But we'll see what the defense says. Now they started, the defense started uh, because they were not successful in getting the judge to toss the case. Uh, Spoiler alert on that. But um, they began with the coroner who talked about how he did not take the body's temperatures when he originally arrived on scene, which is the best way to do it. You take the temperatures with a rectal thermometer, and that will allow you to determine the, the time of death. He did not do that because he says he generally doesn't. When it is clear that they are dead, he's not going to pull down someone's pants you know, at the crime scene and do that. So he puts his hand under their armpit. And all that does is give him sort of this range of like, uh, one to three hours. And that's where he came up with the range of anywhere between like 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., which he pegged it at nine. He said roughly 9 p.m. based on the temperature in that he put his hand and they were still warm. Uh, Rigor mortis had not or rigor had not set in yet. And uh, so he said nine o'clock. But that could be plus or minus an hour on either side of that. And so the defense made a big point to that, saying that you don't know. It could have been as early as 8. It could have been as late as 10. You don't know. You're just you're just ballparking it. And he agreed, yes, that was the case. Um, next up, we're going to hear the audio from the state, where they provide essentially a blueprint of what their closing argument is going to sound like. All righty. So um, the state rested its case against Alec Murdoch. Now, they will get another chance to rebut right so they will get to come back uh when they make their closing arguments then the defense makes its close and then the state always gets that last uh they they get the twofer um but this i thought was a really good way to get a read on what that closing argument is going to sound like from the state this is uh the uh solicitor i'm sorry this is one of the attorney general's uh deputies i believe creighton waters laying out the case again this is a preview of what the close is probably going to sound like. Your Honor, uh, looking at the evidence that's been presented by the state, first of all, without um, detailing every bit of evidence, there's been ample evidence of motive evidence presented in this particular case. 
the years of embezzlement and theft and the exposure, uh, very significant exposure that the defendant was facing as June the 7th uh, approached, which includes the loss of a job, the loss of a career, the loss of his bar license, uh, the loss of years of wealth, uh, the potential uh, to lose everything in his own words. Uh, you've heard evidence about a confrontation June 7th, on, June 7th on those matters that very day, as well as the boat hearing that was up, upcoming. Uh, and, and the effects that that would have. Also heard uh, extensive evidence of the defendant's uh, financial condition uh, on that day as it moved forward. Also evidence, Your Honor, of uh, his ongoing narcotics addiction and how those particular things were relevant uh, to, um, to what was going on uh, as it related to the victims. Now, there's been evidence, and again, as Your Honor is aware, uh, the evidence must be taken in, in the light most favorable to the state. Uh, that uh, family weapons were used to uh, murder Maggie and Paul. Uh, you've uh, heard evidence uh, from the uh, defendant's own mouth about uh, a missing shotgun, and of course we have extensive evidence about uh, the missing blackout, that being the replacement gun. Uh, of course, uh, you've heard evidence that uh, the defendant claimed that was missing at Christmas time, uh, but there was evidence from Will Loving that that gun uh, was present and being used, including at the side of the house as late as turkey season, uh, just a uh, couple months prior to the murders and that uh, from the firearms expert that the cases uh, found around Maggie's body uh, were cycled through the same weapon. The murder weapons cycled the same cases as weather cases that were found uh, at the side of the house, um, consistent with what Will Loving testified, as well as at the shooting range across the street. Um, you've additionally uh, heard that the same exact uh, brand and weight of ammo uh, that was used to kill Maggie was found throughout the property. Uh, as well as the same uh, buckshot and birdshot ammo as well. Uh, there's been evidence uh, presented by the state as to the defendant's trip to Alameda and his interaction with uh, Shelley Smith uh, um, after the uh, murders, as well as the uh, bringing the raincoat in. Um, additionally, that uh, he uh, left and moved his dad's truck in the four-wheeler and that the uh, raincoat contained uh, high levels of GSR. Um, there's been evidence presented in this particular case, uh, inconsistent with the defendant's statements to law enforcement, uh, multiple changes of clothes that particular day, as well as evidence from Blanca uh, that the clothes that he was wearing in the Snapchat video uh, were never uh, seen again, as well as uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that uh, the earlier clothes that he was wearing uh, were not seen either. Uh, you have evidence that the defendant claimed uh, that uh, he was unaware that um, Maggie was coming to Moselle, or he did not ask for that, but you've heard evidence from multiple sources, including a text message that he specifically asked uh, the victim to be present on that day. Your Honor, uh, he was found in possession of a shotgun that cannot be excluded as a murder weapon that also had Maggie's blood on it. Uh, and then, of course, Your Honor, we have um, extensive uh, phone and other digital evidence, and I don't need to reiterate the last witness, uh, but that's been presented from multiple witnesses and multiple sources. Uh, of a timeline. Uh, the defendant, of course, claimed that he was never at the scene, uh, and the evidence shows, uh, pursuant to the state's theory and reasonable inferences therefrom, uh, that he was at the scene, uh, contrary to what he told everyone who would listen, um, just minutes, he's at the scene with the two victims just minutes before, under the state's theory and a reasonable inference from the evidence, uh, the victims were killed. Additionally, his conduct uh, in the timeline after that, uh, there's a number of reasonable inferences about that that are consistent with the uh, defendant's guilt. And uh, 
to summarize uh, a month's worth of evidence, uh, uh, that is uh, that is the, the summary. I'm happy to address the timeline more, but I know that Your Honor just heard it in great detail. All right, so that's the state's blueprint. He ran through them pretty quickly. I suspect, you know, because it's a formality. I mean, the judge knew that this, you know, this motion for a directed verdict was going to come from the defense. They It always does. And so you kind of got to run through some of this stuff. And I think that's why he was doing it so quickly. But maybe he was also doing it because he doesn't want to give it, you know, the defense too much of this blueprint. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, he ran through that pretty quickly. But you can hear sort of how they built the case. And I said from the very beginning, it's going to come down to the timeline. They waited until the very last witness to put on the stand to try to make all of these connections. You heard Creighton Waters. He did not even go into that stuff. He just said, you just heard all the timeline stuff. I think, like, I, my anticipation is that they're going to do, like, a TikTok on this thing. Not a video, but, like, well, they should do a video. But they're going to do a, they're going to put it all together, and he's going to have to tell the story. And he's going to have to tell it with each ticking of the clock to make it all sort of make sense. Um. There was also this debate about the defense attorney said that uh, this is all exclusively uh, circumstantial evidence. And then he cited the case law for why, uh, you know, if it's all uh, circumstantial, then this this one uh, precedent would apply. Now, the judge heard all of that and he rejected this idea. Here's the judge. There's a motion for directed verdict that's made at the end of the state's case. The court is concerned with whether there is any evidence, either direct or circumstantial, which reasonably tends to prove the guilt of the accused, or from which the guilt of the accused may be fairly and logically deduced. In this case, we have had, uh, is it day 20 now? Um, I guess 18 days of direct and circumstantial evidence, uh, and the law makes no distinction between the weight or value to be given either direct evidence or circumstantial evidence, nor is a greater degree of certainty required of circumstantial evidence than of direct evidence. Uh, cases can be proven by direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, or a combination of the two. At this stage of the proceedings, uh, there's evidence to support a guilty verdict if it is believed by the jury. I therefore deny the motion for a directed verdict. Uh, ready to roll with the defense? Rock and roll, Your Honor. Rock and roll. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a 30-second stretch and bring the jury out. All right, there you go. So that was the judge, um, Clifton Newman, denying the motion. The reason I pulled that audio clip was really for this one purpose. I mean, you get a sense of, like, how the judge is running his courtroom, which I find to be uh, well-run. But he's um, – he, I also pulled it because he talks about circumstantial evidence. And I keep hearing people talk about, it's only circumstantial, it's only circumstantial – Yes, and that's what most trials use, circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence, but circumstantial, and they are to be given equal weight. It's not, you cannot convict alone on a single piece of circumstantial evidence, but if you have so much of it, at some point you, you are led to, 
one and only one reasonable conclusion is that all of the circumstantial evidence points to this one person being guilty because they're guilty. Right? That's the idea. That's the reasonable expectation. There's a good write-up at the Post and Courier, paper out of Charleston, going over some of the uh, the questions that the defense is now going to have to address. And I'm not saying that they legally have to answer all of these issues that get raised. I'm not making that argument. I'm saying if you're trying to convince people or to plant a reasonable doubt, you have to offer them some other rational, reasonable, plausible explanation for a string of behaviors, right? So one of them uh, that they have to address is uh, the lie that Maggie Murdoch uh, was there to surprise Alec Murdoch the day she was murdered, that Alec didn't know she was coming, that that she surprised him. That is not the case. That was not true. Why would he say that? Why would he say that she was not expected to be there when, in fact, he asked her to come so they could go visit his parents? His dad had just been admitted into the hospital, and he asked her to be there. And then he told police that she surprised him because she was worried about him. That's not true. So they have to find a way to address that. They also have to find a way to address the lie that... Uh, after dinner, he laid down and took a nap and then got up and left for his mom's house. That's his alibi. That's his story. They did have the same dinner. That is what the uh, medical examiner testified to. They said that the the contents of both uh, uh, Maggie and Paul's uh, stomachs, they they shared the same meal, looked like the same food. And um, so that's consistent that they ate the meal that was prepared for them by Blanca, their housekeeper and friend. And so they ate the same dinner. Timeline would put it, according to Alec, was somewhere around 8.15 or so. And then he lays down and takes a nap. And his phone doesn't move until a little bit after 9 o'clock, when it then gets into, he, he picks it up and he goes into his car and he takes off to go see his mom at her house in Almeida. And... That timeline, because he says he was asleep on the couch, that is his, that's the time frame that we know it's most likely the murders occurred. He never reported hearing any gunshots, right? So he, he wants us to believe that it occurred sometime after he left, so like 9.06 when he left, to when he got uh, back. So an hour. That one hour when he was away is when, as luck would have it, these assailants show up at the property, find two guns that are the Murdoch family firearms, f- happen to come across the two weapons that are there, and they uh, they murder Paul and Maggie and then leave before Alex comes back. This is a problem because the video that Paul shot at the kennels, that video was at about a quarter till nine, and you clearly hear Maggie's voice and you hear Alex's voice in the video. And this is problematic because he lied about being at the kennels. He said he was never down there until he returned home from his mom's house and found the bodies. But that video shows otherwise. What it also shows is that he did not take his phone with him down to the kennels. And that's a very odd thing to do because everybody has testified that the guy was a prolific cell phone user. 
would never be without his phone. He was on it all the time, talking to people, texting people, scrolling through stuff, doing stuff on his phone all the time. But we are to believe that he, what, laid down, took a nap, woke up, left the phone at the house, walked down to the kennels, got on that video, then went back up to the kennels and forgot that he was down at the kennels. That's what we're supposed to believe. And then there's the question of, they have to find a way to address this as well, the change of clothing. Because the change of clothing, which he never mentioned, he never offered, they still have not offered, nobody has ever said, hey, here, here's the clothes from that night. The defense could present that, and maybe they will. Maybe that's how they address it. Maybe they enter into evidence, these are his clothes. There's no chain of custody to prove that. That's why you should have turned them over to the cops. But the defense so far, what they're going to try to do is make this argument that law enforcement focused on Alec Murdoch from the very beginning, and they basically uh, made the evidence fit him instead of looking for the real killers that I think also were responsible for the murder of O.J. Simpson's life. No, I'm kidding. I I don't know. But that's going to be their argument that uh, the local law enforcement put out a statement to the public saying, don't worry, nothing to fear, no public threat here. So that they were already narrowing uh, the suspect list down to just one person, and that was Alec Murdoch. And they ignored all other evidence in that goal. All righty, that is a wrap for the program. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.